Peruan Saranai. Welcome to today's Esalapoya Dhamma session. And as we know, today is a very auspicious day. It's a day that was celebrated or is celebrated because of many significant events. And as a reminder, today was the day that Prince Siddhartha left lay life and he went forth as an ascetic in search of the truth. And of course, Prince Rahula was also born on this day and significantly as well on this Asalapoya. Uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he went to Isipatana in Varanasi and which is now Sarnath and he delivered his first teaching uh, to the five monks that he had uh, been with prior to his enlightenment when he was still doing self-mortification. And so it's a day that we celebrate as the first teaching of the Buddha, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta. And that's where the, that was the setting forth in motion, the wheel of the Dhamma. So the teaching of the four noble truths. And we know from the Sachavibhanga Sutta that this wheel of Dhamma cannot be stopped by anyone in the world. And so we are very encouraged to learn these four noble truths. The other significant event after the Buddha's Parinibbana, also on Esalapoya, is this first convocation of the monastic Sangha. So that was convened for the first time on Esalapoya. And then lastly, as we know, the Vasa, the rains retreat for the monastic Sangha, it always begins the day after Esalapoya. So that's a period of approximately three months. And so given the significance of this day, that it's so auspicious and so significant in our Buddhist calendar, it seems a very good thing to honour this day, this significant day, honour the Buddha by listening to the Buddha's words on the Four Noble Truths. So we revisit and refresh our understanding of the First Noble Truth. This First Noble Truth of Suffering is the one we're going to concentrate on today uh, and meditate on, but we, uh, I will go through the Four Noble Truths in brief at least. And the thing is, it's also a time to actually practice some of these meditations together, to actually penetrate and establish the right view. That's why we get together. That's why we want to encourage each other. And so on the Buddha's, Buddha's learning system, you know, there's Sutta Daro, there's Sutta Sanichyo, there's Bahusutta Honti. So we're, we're listening, we're hearing, we're gathering, we're confirming. And of course, we're contemplating. So we come to Parichitta, Manasanu Pekita, Vitya hopefully, which is the, about establishing the right view. So there's many things there that we're doing today that, that help us. So if we begin, then what we're covering is I'll go over our usual tips and reminders quite quickly. Then I'll give an overview of the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta. Then we'll look at the Four Noble Truths as well as some aspects that just to refresh ourselves why it's so beneficial. And then we're going to deep dive into the First Noble Truth of Dukkha and we'll do some meditation. And at the end, we'll have Q&A. The thing is, if you're observing SIL today and you need to leave, if we do happen to run over, then please feel free to to depart and and go and take your meal and, and those sorts of things. I'm hoping to keep it to a suitable amount of time, not not to go over too much. But some of these meditations are particularly important, so we'll see how we go. But you have uh, the freedom to, to come and go as you wish. So tips and reminders, as usual, keep an open mind, 
be okay with not understanding everything or even wanting to go away and, and learn something offline. Again, we are all seekers. So if we have that hat on, it's that there may be words that the Buddha says that we haven't heard before or that we've heard them uh, before and we want to actually listen with fresh ears. We want to apply ourselves to the Buddha's words. And, of course, when it comes to the meditation, as much as possible, take on board the Buddha's instructions, apply some of our own examples so we penetrate the truth. And lastly, let's have good wishes for everybody, that when we're meditating, when we're actually listening, that we are cultivating a mind that is imbued with more metta, more compassion, more karuna, uh, and, and also listening with a lot of goodness. And at the same time, I think to kick off, it's always good to bring to our mind right now all the people that have helped us all along the way, all the teachers, all the loved ones, all the people that support us, everyone that's made this it's possible, and to share the goodness with them as well. So let's begin with uh, the Dhamma Chakra Vatana Sutta. So as we know, the Buddha had enlightened at Borgaya and it was previously known as Uruvela and at that time he was contemplating that there was difficulty in teaching this Dhamma to others that people had both keen and dull faculties and good and bad qualities in the world and it would be difficult to teach the Dhamma and as we know Brahma Sahampati came from the Brahma worlds to pay respects to the Buddha and to request and invite the Buddha to teach the Dhamma saying that if the Blessed One teaches the Dhamma, then at least the beings with a little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing the Dhamma, some will gain the final knowledge of the Dhamma. And so Brahma Sahampati, he was the one that made it possible for us to have these teachings now. So when Buddha, after having this conversation, this discourse with with Brahma Sahampati, he, he was thinking of who he could teach. And if you remember, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta were the two teachers that he knew that were wise and learned and hadn't uh, been able to penetrate the truth. And so he wanted to teach them, but they were, we found out that both of them had, had passed away quite recently. And then he recalled this group of five monks. And so he actually went, after a while, he went using his divine eye, he saw that they were in Benares. So he saw that they were staying at this deer park in Isipatana. And so he went, he made his way there and he met up with them. And at this point, the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta begins. And because these five monks, they had the view that self-mortification was the way to go, that, that if one didn't take up those kinds of practices, then you weren't on the right path. And at the same time, the Buddha um, and so they had scoffed at the Buddha and saying that because he had not kept doing those self-mortification, that he was doing the luxurious sort of path, the other ex- extreme of self-indulgence and, and reverting to luxury. And so the Buddha's teaching in the Dhamma uh, Chakapawatana Sutta is really saying that it's not the two extremes. You don't pursue central happiness in central pleasures, which is the indulgent path. And you don't pursue the one of self-mortification and, and torturing yourself and, and all these sorts of things. And so he said both of them should not be cultivated. And so what the Buddha had then said was that 
instead of pursuing these two, he said, without veering towards other of these extremes, that the Bhagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So essentially what the Buddha goes on to say is that the Matima Patipada, the Noble Eightfold Path, is the way to go. And the awaken, the awakening happens through that. And so it gives rise to the vision, so the Chaku Karani, the knowledge, the Jnana Karani, the peace, which is the Upasamaya, direct knowledge, which is the Abhinaya, and to enlightenment, which is the Sambodaya, and then Nibbana, so the cooling, the, the extinction, the final bliss. So then the Buddha in the Dhamma Chakravatana Sutta goes on to talk about the four noble truths. So you have the first noble truth, which is the noble truth of Dukkha. And you have all these things that the Buddha explains as birth, aging, sickness, death, union with what is displeasing, separation from what is not pleasing, from what is pleasing, um, not getting what one wants is suffering. And in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. And of course, we know from other suttas that there is sorrow, lamentation, grief, pain, and despair as well that is included in that. But for some reason, the Dhamma Chakravatana Sutta doesn't include it in there. But if you go to the Samaditi Sutta, Satchapivanga Sutta, and a number of other suttas, those other terms are included in there. Then you have the noble truth of the origin of dukkha, which is all about panha, all about craving, that one has all these these three different kinds of craving, craving for central pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. And then the third noble truth being the cessation of that craving. You give it up, you relinquish it, because you know that the only way out is through the noble eightfold path, which is the fourth noble truth, that you begin with the right view, which we've spoken about at length, in previous Poya sessions. Also, then it leads to the right intention, the right speech, the right action, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right concentration. And I will go into a bit of explanation of that a little bit later. So those are the four noble truths that the Buddha expounded in his first teaching. And after that, what he was talking about was these three stages or, or three uh, parts to it and that there are 12 aspects or 12 insights to it. So we've seen this, this table before. It's from the, both the Dhamma Sutta, but also the Parinyaya Sutta. So when we look at this, what, what we should know is that all the Tathagatas understand the Four Noble Truths in this way. That's what uh, one of the suttas says. And what the first stage is, is that you have this knowledge that there are these four noble truths. So that, that is this satchanyana, that you understand that there is dukkha, this first noble truth of dukkha. There is this craving, the first noble truth of the origin of dukkha. You understand that there is this cessation. That's the noble truth. And then you understand that the way out of uh, that leads to the cessation of dukkha is, of course, this Aryatankamaga, this noble eightfold path. The second stage is really about you know what needs to be done, this kitanyana, you know what needs to be done. And so dukkha is the one that needs to be fully understood. Tanha, craving, is to be abandoned, fully abandoned. And cessation of suffering, this is neurotic, it has to be realized. And then with the path, you have to develop the path. 
And so as seekers, we are actually in these first two stages. We are learning that, about these noble truths and we are actually knowing what needs to be done about them. And then the last stage is really the arahant who has perfected uh, the, this, these insights, these knowledges. So this is the katanyana, that the knowledge of what has been done. So dukkha for an arahant is you fully under, have understood dukkha. The craving, the tanha has been fully abandoned and the order has been fully realized and then the noble eightfold path has been fully developed. And so in this way, uh, this is what we strive for. When we still experience the first noble truth of dukkha, then we know that we haven't fully understood it yet. And so this session, our objective is really to, again, look at it and try and penetrate as much as possible this first noble truth. So when uh, the Buddha had declared all that, then he actually said at the end of that that so long because it's my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths as they really are in their three phases and 12 aspects was not thoroughly purified in this way. I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara and Brahma, in this generation with its ascetics and Brahmas, its devas and humans. But when my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths as they really are in their three phases and 12 aspects was thoroughly purified in this way, then I claimed to have awakened to unsurpassed perfect enlightenment. So that knowledge and vision arose in the Buddha and he said it was unshakable. So the unshakable liberation of the mind. And so he could declare that was his last birth and there was no more coming back to samsara. And when that happened, all the devas started crying out, uh, they, they, they were very, very happy. In, in actual fact, what happened first was Venerable Kundanya, um, after hearing the Buddha's words, obtained the eye of the Dhamma, so the Dhamma Chaku, as we know, this is he entered the stream. So he was the first one and he penetrated it through knowing whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. So Yang Kinchi Samudaya Dhamma, Sabangtang Niroda Dhamma Pi. So he understood that, that whatever is subject to originate or arise is subject to ceasing as well. So Samudaya Dhamma or Samudaya Niroda. And Buddha confirmed that Venerable Kundanya had indeed understood. And so the wheel of Dhamma started turning. And so that's when all the Deva realms started crying out with the news because they knew that the, the wheel of the Dhamma was set in motion and it spread as far as the Brahma world. And the Sutta says that it shook the 10,000-fold world system. It quaked and it trembled and there was a, a glorious radiance that appeared in the world. So after that, Venerable Kundanya, Kundanya requested to go forth and then soon after his other uh, companions, the other four also did the same. They soon after entered the stream and then they all became arahants after listening to the second teaching of the Buddha, which was the Anattalakana Sutta. So that is the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta. So let's look at the Four Noble Truths. So let's broadly examine some of the things about, about the Four Noble Truths that maybe uh, we need to quickly refresh our minds. So uh, one who takes refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, can penetrate with wisdom the Four Noble Truths. So that's very important. If you take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, then it becomes poss- possible for you to actually do that. Uh, 
In the past, all the summoners, we know that Gautama was called Gautama Summoner. So one who has, in in the definition of summoner, it's a summoner is someone who sotapanna, sakatagami, anagami, arahant, and who has all the good qualities uh, cultivated. Um, and have, the, the summoners are the ones that fully awaken to things as they really are. They do that through the Four Noble Truths. They've done it in the past, they've done it in the future, and right now that is how people are awakening. And one interesting, uh, two interesting suttas, uh, one is called the Abhija Sutta, one is called the Vija Sutta. So one is about ignorance and another is about uh, knowledge. That ignorance is not knowing the Four Noble Truths, so that's one definition. So that means you're immersed in ignorance. And the second is that knowledge, Vija, is knowing the Four Noble Truths and you exert yourself towards understanding them. So Buddha also says that if you don't understand and penetrate the Four Noble Truths, and that's why he, as well as everyone else, has roamed and wandered through the long course of samsara. All arahants and buddhas become awakened through the Four Noble Truths. So you can see how important it is. And then it goes on in another one of the suttas. This is all in Sayyutta Nikaya, and Chapter 56 is all about the truths. And it, it goes on to say, if you want to destroy the asavas, so these are the taints, the very deeply embedded defilements, then one has to know and see the Four Noble Truths. So this is all encouragement for us to to understand why the Four Noble Truths are are held out so, so importantly and they're so valuable to us. And there, it goes on to even say there are, there are, Similes that the Buddha uses. There's, there's one in the Sailor Sutra that struck me, which was even more than if your clothes and your head were on fire, one should make extraordinary effort to make the breakthrough to understand the Four Noble Truths. Um, and there's other ones about trying to carry water in a basket made out of leaves. And, it's, and that's how impossible it is to end suffering if you don't penetrate the Four Noble Truths. So many, 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 many similes like that that really lend themselves to the gravity of our situation, but also the the need to exert more energy around trying to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. And so Buddha's always trying to encourage us to penetrate them through our samadhi, our samasamadhi, so through our, our right concentration, also through seclusion. So we don't get distracted with other things. Our mind gets quite refined. And not to cultivate unskillful things. Instead, cultivate the Four Noble Truths. So Buddha, in some of the suttas, says, don't argue with people about mundane things. Instead, talk about the Four Noble Truths. Don't cultivate unworthy talk, you know, the Tiratanakata. Talk about the Four Noble Truths. So that's always the way that he keeps encouraging all of us. So we come back to the Four Noble Truths. I'll explain them in a little bit more detail. So the first Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of Dukkha. This is the complete version of it. So it has 12 particular terms plus the last one of the five aggregates subject to clinging are also suffering. So we're going to go through that in much more detail today. But Dukkha always has this characteristic, and this is explained in the Pekapapadesa, it always has the characteristic of sickness. The sickness is being the wrong view around Dukkha, that we don't fully understand why it is a noble truth, and that's what we're going to look at more closely today. Tanha has more of this characteristic of generating, that because you have this craving, this defilement of craving, you end up wanting to generate another birth, you want to conceive again, you want to relink. 
once you've passed away. And then the Rolda has this characteristic of abandoning the arising, that you samudaya pahana, and that you are going towards true peace, the santi. But these are the things that the Pethagopadesa draws out about these noble truths. And the fourth one with the path, uh, the Pethagopadesa says that it has this characteristic of severing any underlying tendencies and it leads to only what is profitable. And so it gives you a different sense for the, um, the four noble truths. And so if we look at the first noble truth, we know that we need to examine each of these terms. We need to examine birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, despair, and then uh, union with what is displeasing and separation from what is pleasing, not getting what one wants, and then lastly, in brief, the five aggregates subject to, to clinging is dukkha. And it's a really difficult thing to actually want to contemplate. Let's just be really upfront about it. Nobody really wants to closely attend to the first noble truth. It's very unpalatable. It's like when you see something on TV that you don't like, you turn it off or you switch the channel. We are the same way when it comes to meditating on the first noble truth. So it's good to put that on the table. And so when we get into the detail of it, at least we know it is hard and we need a lot of courage, a lot of effort in in order to access the first noble truth. And one of the meditations that is really useful is always the five frequent contemplation the Abhinna Pacha Vekitava Patatana Sutta, that when Buddha talks about the five frequent contemplations, it's because it helps you to access the first noble truth because four of them distinctly focus on this first noble truth. And the, the fifth is always about karma. So you're, you're, you end up looking at um, the truth anyway through that fifth one. And, of course, Dukkha can be understood furthermore in seven terms. You know that, of course, it has this you you uh, are united with what is displeasing, you're separated from what is displeasing. But dukkha can also be broken into bodily suffering and mental suffering. And then, of course, there's painfulness in pain, dukkha dukkha, which we've spoken about before. There's also painfulness in construction, so sankara dukkha. And there's painfulness in change, vipranama dukkha. So these types of terms, the things that Buddha talks about in the First Noble Truth, it can actually be categorized into some of these terms as well. So then we come to the second noble truth. And the second noble truth is really around the origin of suffering. So it's really looking at tanha, that we look at why are we coming back to this renewed existence? And so Buddha talks about these three, craving for central pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. And so craving for sensual pleasures is this pamatanha. So we're happy to live this life because of our sensual objects, because of our sensual pleasures. We we derive the sukha from it. And so that's the reasoning why we think that we want to actually be be in this world, be in a in a body, be in this life. And then when it comes to bhavatana, that follows on from that, that you're happy to exist living the life with this kind of sukha. And so that's bhavatanha. And then when it comes to vipavatanha, this is the craving for non-existence. And people think that's just, I don't want to be here. But it's actually when you take yourself out of form pleasures, like sensual pleasures, anything to do with form, then what you're saying is even without your, your sweets and all these other kinds of form pleasures, and some of us renunciate, 
that you're still happy to exist because you still derive sukha from maybe jhanas or maybe higher mental attainments. And so this is the craving for non-existence, that you're happy to give up the form world, but you're, you actually still indulge through the, the formless. And so that's another way of understanding a craving for non-existence. And so when craving is there, then you have this effect of samudaya that you establish wherever your six sense bases see something that is agreeable, whether it's through the ear, eyes, nose, tongue, body, or the mind. And so that's what the second noble truth uh, broadly is about. Then the third noble truth is really around the cessation of dukkha, that you, you're giving up and relinquishing all of that, anything that you are craving for, that you have the misapprehension, the wrong view about, then there is this passing away of it, the passing away of those three different kinds of tanha, of craving. So anything agreeable to you and pleasurable to you is the, is the most often the thing that, that is the one that uh, binds you. So you're happy to give it up because you see the truth. And there are meditations to actually see that. One in particular is the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta for both seeing the arising and the passing away. And so what you declare when you actually realize this third noble truth is that you don't want to come back. You don't take delight in the things that you previously had the wrong view about. You don't establish on it. And therefore, you don't create another another birth from it. And so you need the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, in order to actually do that. So the fourth noble truth is the Noble Eightfold Path. Buddha calls this the highest of the paths, and we'll look at the actual Dhammapada verse a little bit later on this. But you begin with right view, which we've spoken about at length many times. When you understand the four noble truths, this is actually right view. So Samaditi is actually the highest uh, Samaditi in terms of the right view. The highest right view is really knowing the third noble truth because there's no tanha in it. And so there is a dispassion, a fading away, a relinquishing of it. And so that becomes your highest noble truth. Anything that you learn in the four noble truths towards the niroda is actually what is the most precious thing. And so when you have the right view, what happens is you start to renunciate. You start to cultivate non-ill will thinking and you also start to cultivate non-cruelty thinking. So this is really, what is this? This is non-greed, non-delusion, non-hatred. And this really stems from the fact that you're cultivating the path that is that is the noble evil path. It's built on non-greed, it's built on non-hatred, and it's built on non-delusion. So that's where right intention kicks in. You have renunciation thoughts, so they're not greedy anymore. There's no ill will thinking and there's no cruelty thinking. So that lends, leads on to right speech. Because you're already thinking in this way, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, therefore you start abstaining from false speech, from divisive speech, from harsh speech, from frivolous speech. They also fall under the categories of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And then when it comes to right action, then again that flows on from that, that you refrain from taking what hasn't been given or stealing, you refrain from killing living beings, and you refrain from sexual misconduct. Uh, or the higher level of that um, misusing through sense pleasures. And, of course, that also lends itself to right livelihood. So with right livelihood, there's a mundane and a supramundane. So the mundane path is simply that you give up the wrong livelihood of selling alcohol, drugs, human trafficking, weapons, all the nasties 
that that will lead you to really bad rebirths by by doing that kind of wrong livelihood. On the supramundane path, which is the Arya path, the path of the noble ones, then it goes even higher than that, that the Buddha says that it's only when you're a renunciant that you don't handle money, you don't have a bank account, and you eat by kinderpart, that you, you're not storing food anymore because you, you have no money, you're not storing food, and um, you actually go and seek alms. That is the true Arya because you no longer have the conceit because conceit comes in from wrong livelihood. And so that's the fast track on the, on, on the Noble Eightfold Path is when you live that kind of livelihood. And then it flows on to right livelihood. In order to preserve all these things, then you make the effort. So you prevent unarisen, evil, unwholesome states. So you're, you're preventing the karma vitaka, viapada vitaka, vihinsa vitaka. So you're preventing the, the renuncia, the greedy thoughts. You're preventing the ill will thoughts and you're preventing the cruelty thoughts. And then the second right effort is really that you want to overcome any of these things that have actually arisen. So you want to overcome greed, hatred and delusion. And thirdly, uh, you have this, uh, inclination to produce the kusala the unarisen kusala states, the unarisen wholesome state. So when you're walking this path, you actually try to have the state of one that has magapala, one that has the, the higher level of sadda towards Buddha. Because this higher sadda means that you have the ability to access the higher truth. And therefore, when you actually try to cultivate kusala states, you're always thinking, may I have the sadda of any of the Magapala stage, stages? So if you're not a stream anchor, you can't have the, the sadda of a, of a sotapanna. If you are a sotapanna, then you try and have that of a sakadagami and so on and so forth. But ultimately, all it is is that you're trying to have the higher level of sadda because it's the highest gain. The highest truth comes from the highest conviction. Towards Buddha's enlightenment, Buddha's actual teachings. And at this point, really, that equates to not taking any of these things as me and mine. And so then the fourth one is you want to guard, preserve, maintain the wholesome states. And so in order to safeguard that towards Nibbana. And so this is really around making sure the mind stays quite clean, the mind stays un- undisturbed. And so from right effort, you develop the right mindfulness. And as we know from the Satipatthana Suttas, that this is around Kayanupasana, which is the contemplation of the body, Vedanupasana, which is the contemplation of feelings and experience. Uh, Chitanupasana is the third, which is contemplation of the mind. And Dhammanupasana is contemplation of Dhamma. And this feeds right into Samasamadhi, right concentration, which is the last part of the Noble Eightfold Path. The four primary developments that we're developing for Sama Samabi are actually very, very important. And pretty much you are developing the, the four form jhanas, so the, the jhanas that actually help you to develop Sama Samabi. And also the Bojangas tend to kick in when you get activated, when you're, you're cultivating um, the Buddha's Jnanapathas, insight or knowledge pathways, because that's what Buddha is trying to do, trying to activate the Noble Eightfold Path so you get to Samadhi at the end and you need all your spiritual faculties, all the powers, all the wings of awakening to help you to do that. And so there are four developments that we do in Samadhi and they come out of the Noble Eightfold Path. The first is Bhavitakaya, 
So this comes from cultivating the right action, Sama Kamantha, and Sama Adiva to the right livelihood. When you have those two cultivated and developed properly, correctly, and you do the meditations, what you're doing is you're stopping bodily formations, so Kaya Sankaras. The second one is Bhavita Sila. So Bhavita Sila is really around Samavacha and Samavayama. So you're cultivating the right speed and you're applying the right effort to do that. And why are you doing that? It's because you're trying to stop verbal formations. So it's Vachisankara. So that's the Bhavita Sila. So the development due to virtue. And then you have the Bhavita Chitta, which is development of mind. And this is really around Sama Sankapa, which is the right intention, and the Sama Samadhi, the right concentration. And so what you're trying to do here by when you really cultivate all these renunciant thoughts, non-ill will thoughts, and non-cruelty thoughts, and you get the right concentration, then you stop mental formation. So you stop the Manosamparas. And then the last development is the Bhavita Panya, so the development through wisdom. And this is really around samadhiti, so the right view, not the wrong view, and the samasati, so you have the establishments in mindfulness there. And where this gets you is you ultimately out of wisdom, you stop the mind. So all the vimuktis come from this, as well as nirodha samapati. And so this is how you tie it all together. And the really, the best sutta for understanding the Noble Eightfold Path is really the Mahachattariska Sutta, so that's Majjhiminikaya 117. And it makes the distinction between wrong view and the two kinds of right view. So we understand that within the right view, there's mundane and there's supramundane. So mundane means that you understand that if you do merit, then you develop punya and that has very good kamma, that you understand that the authorities, the mother, the father, and also these, these people that are practicing the path. And, and so you, you cultivate a path that is very wholesome, but you understand that while cultivating that path, you still have fetters, sanyojanas, so you're still bound to rebirth in sansara, but you may be trying to enter the stream and, and safeguarding yourself from the whole mass of suffering. But Buddha goes on to talk about the supramundane, the Arya side of the, the Lokotra, the Arya side of, of right view. And they're all the same thing when it comes to right view, but it's just that Buddha makes the distinction so one knows that With the Arya side, you're actually trying to have the noble right view. And this is the view that comes from a lot of wisdom, the faculty of wisdom. And so the mind with wisdom can be without fetters, can be without the sanyojanas and and uproot the taints, uproot the asavas. There's a clear distinction there. And so by that, the Buddha is talking about the person that is Sotapanna, the stream enterer, the Sakadagami, the once returner, the Anagami, who is the non-returner, and of course the Arahant. And so when you walk the path and you, you get the fruit, then you have path and fruit. You have the Magapala. And that only comes from the faculty of wisdom. So I'm not going to go any deeper than that because that will take more time and uh, we'll leave that one for another session. So then we come to uh, this thing that I mentioned before, which was the story of the 500, because this, this was actually this Dhamma part, the verse I was saying about why, um, uh, the, the, what is the greatest truth and what is the greatest path. And so this story was when the Buddha was staying in Jethavana Monastery 
and 500 bhikkhus had accompanied him into the village. And, and so when they had returned to the monastery later in the day, the, the, the monks had gathered and they were talking about the trip they had made with the Buddha. And so they were expounding and, and talking, conversing in great detail about the landscape and whether it was hilly, whether it was clay, stony, all kinds of different uh, descriptions. And so the Buddha came to them in the middle of their conversation and the words that he spoke were, to them were, because the path you are talking about is external to you. A bhikkhu should only be concerned about the path of the noble ones, the Aryas, and strive to do what should be done for the attainment of this path. That is the path that will lead to the realization of the supreme or perfect peace. That's the path that leads to Nibbana. And then he spoke these four verses that you can see on the screen. And so in this particular uh, Dhammapada, four verses, the Buddha is saying that of the past, the, the Eightfold Path is the Supreme Path. Of the truths, the Four Noble Truths is, is the Supreme One. And of the Dhammas, Nibida, this passion is the one that is, is supreme. And of the people, the one that knows this truth, the one that sees, so the seer, is the one that is, is also the best. And so in regards to the path, there is no other uh, for purity of insight. So if you really want to, to see, to develop the understanding, then the Noble Eightfold Path is the one. It's the path that confuses Mara, bewilders him. And if you follow the path, then you can realize the end of suffering, so the Niroda. And so this is the path that the Buddha has declared, having removed the arrow by knowledge. So he has uprooted the poison that gives us the wrong view and, and leads to, you know, uh, transmigrating samsara, lifetime after lifetime. And so the final verse says, it is your duty to make effort, uh, and this is what the Tathagatas declare. So we need to, as seekers, remind ourselves we need to make effort in this direction to see it for ourselves. So we need to follow the path and practice the jhanas, practice the right concentration in order to be released from Mara's bonds in this lifetime or, or in lifetimes you know, sooner to come. So it's a very nice uh, a few verses from the Buddha as inspiration for us. So then when you look at the Four Noble Truths, we've also looked at this before, like, and we've just spoken about it, the Samudaya side and the Niroda side, sometimes also the Niroda is spoken about in terms of passing away, Atangama. So when you look at the Four Noble Truths, the first two are known as arising. So when you understand the first two, you know, this is how we create another body. And when you understand the third and the fourth, you understand this is how we don't create the body. This is really a Paticca Samupada, if you think about it. This is how dependent origination actually can be explained. And if you correctly uh, contemplate these two, uh, like first and second, and then third and fourth, what the Devaita Anupasana Sutta says is that you can realize final knowledge in this very life, or as well, if there's residue, you can realize anagami. So when you read something like the Mahasatipatthana Sutta in the Diganikaya, then what is always encouraged is you meditate on the Samudaya, then you meditate on the Atangama, and you do the both. And this is also what Buddha did during after his enlightenment. He looked at Paticca Samupada in this way. So... Uh, the Mahapati Padopama Sutta in the Machinakaya 28, it says, Buddha says, friends, just as the footprint of every, any living being 
that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint. And so the elephant's footprint is declared the chief of them because of its greater size. So too, all wholesome dhammas can be included in the Four Noble Truths. So this Four Noble Truths is really all we need because everything fits within it. And so it's the highest Paticca Samupada from that perspective. And it shows us how we construct this birth and how we don't construct this birth. And ultimately, Nibbana is our highest happiness because everything else will always lead to Dukkha and a massive amount of Dukkha depending on where we are born. So we can now look at uh, the noble truth of Dukkha. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So when we look at the first noble truth, the first thing to say that is really, really important is to look at the first noble truth from a collective point of view. What are we all subject to? So the encouragement is always don't look at it from personal dukkha to understand the first noble truth. Yes, we bring our examples, but we also want to understand that collectively we are all in this predicament in this particular way. Sometimes when we look specifically at our own personal suffering, uh, the ins and outs of of our, our particular life, we get bogged down and stuck and misapprehend the feeling or the experience rather than understanding what the Buddha means by the first noble truth. And we're going to go through that right now. So always think bigger picture in order to understand Dukkha. And when you understand that, it really helps to establish the right view because it can be used very, very quickly uh, to understand And so it's important to acknowledge at this point that it is going to be one of the most difficult things for us to to actually contemplate because most of us, if we really stop and think about it, we actually avoid contemplating the first noble truth if we can help it. We'd rather be investigating something else, even if it's in Dhamma. We would rather be doing anapasati. We would rather be cultivating metta and looking at the first noble truth. But What's really important is that the first noble truth even underpins all of that. So one really needs to not avoid it. And the the biggest thing is that the noble wisdom really starts to grow when you get this right. The path really opens up when you really see the first noble truth. And so that's our that's our encouragement that if we can establish and re-establish right view quickly through the first noble truth, that's a real skill and it's really quite liberating. Also, the other thing that the Pethakopadesa says is when you have dinamitta, so most of us go into sloth and torpor, dullness and drowsiness because of work, because of studying. If you have a very good understanding even as a seeker of the first noble truth, you can remove, you can, you can get out of that dullness and drowsiness through the first noble truth. And that's a very handy skill to have. So the key to understanding this is really to know the distinction between what makes dukkha a noble truth. Most of people think that, that it's just the experience of dukkha that if something happens during the day, oh, that's dukkha, that's the first noble truth. It's included in the first noble truth. But it's not why this is a first noble truth, why it is a noble truth. And Buddha is going to explain to us why this is so. And really, bigger picture is the thing you need to keep in mind. And the large part of this is really understanding the body correctly. And we'll see this as we go along. 
And it's also understanding, you know, our sense faculties, the aggregates, also in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So we need to make a lot of effort. There's this sutta called the Gavampati Sutta, also in Chapter 56 of the Sanyutta Nikaya. And Venerable Gavampati is reciting something that he's heard from the Buddha and learned in his presence. And what he says is that when you see one noble truth, then you've seen them all. And so if you even see the first noble truth, you will be able to see the second, the third, and the fourth. And if you see the second, then you'll be able to see the first, third, and the fourth, and so on. So if you see the third, you see the first, second, and fourth as well. If you see the fourth, then you see the first, second, and third as well. So it's very, it's very lovely in that way. Now, when it comes to, uh, the, what, what the sutta actually says, the sutta actually says that what is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and despair are suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, and not getting what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So we're going to go one by one, and we're going to meditate on some of them as well. So the first one is probably the longest that we're going to go through, and that's about death. Oh, sorry, birth. Birth is suffering. So jātati dukkha. And so the sutta says, and what is birth? Birth of beings in the various order of beings. They're coming to birth, precipitation in a womb, generation, manifestation of the aggregates, obtaining the basis for contact. This is called birth. So basically this is all around arising manifesting, gestating in the womb and and obtaining all the things that enable us to birth. And so whether it's birth or rebirth, there is this continual birthing in samsara coming to arise in the world. Now, in order to truly understand birth, we don't want to just look at the human realm like this current existence. We need to look at all realms. And so what does that mean? That means in order to understand this first part to the noble truth of dukkha we need to understand there are 31 planes of existence and the thing is we have been born in all these places whether we know it or not whether we consciously know it or not and birth in all these worlds they divided into three distinct worlds so the first one is karma loka the second is rupa loka and then you have arupa loka so there are four that are um that are Arupa Loka. And there are 16 which are Rupa Loka and there are 11 which are Karma Loka. So if we start with Arupa Loka at the top, so this is part of the Saka, the heavens, along with the Rupa Loka. It's also part of Saka, the heavens. And the Arupa Loka is really about the formless or immaterial worlds. So these are the worlds that are accessible to those who have passed away meditating, particularly on formless jhanas, so the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth jhana. And the Tula Sunyata Sutta, so Madhvanakaya 121, gives more details about Arupa jhanas and therefore Rupa Loka. When we come to the uh, Rupa Loka, so these are the form or the fine material worlds. So these are accessible to those who have attained at least some level of of the first four form jhanas. And in these worlds, what is said in the suttas, and you can find this in the jhana sutta, so this is Anguttara chapter 4, discourse number 123, it talks about very refined bodies of pure light, 
And also you see that the pure abodes are also in these. So Akanita, Sudasi, Sudasa, Atapa, and Aviha. And these are, these are pure abodes are only accessible to those that have reached the point of, or the state of non-return by Anagami. And basically, uh, you can find more, more detail uh, about that, these different worlds, if you like to, by looking at some of these suttas. Now, the, the karma loka that we have down here, there are the ones that are pleasant and there are also the ones that are unpleasant. And so these are sensual worlds. That's why it's called karma loka. So you have the sugati, which is the happy ones, which are also like uh, deva realms here, deva loka, celestial realms. And then you have the miserable ones, the dugati. So there are a number of suttas that talk about it, like the Salayaka Sutta talks about it. And then there's all these ones in the Anguttara Nikaya and uh, Sutta Nipata and Majjhima Nikaya that also talk about these dugatis. And we'll go into that a little bit more. But basically, these are the realms that are dominated by the sense faculties. So if you have very strong delight through your sense faculties, very strong uh, welcoming and remaining holding, then that is what gives the inclination towards being reborn with a body in in um, karma lokas. So human realm is contained within this this third category there. So what we need to then uh, understand is that the Buddha says that the Noble Eightfold Path is to be developed for direct knowledge of these three kinds of existence. So this is in the Bhava Sutta, Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 45, discourse number 164, because most people think, oh, why do I need to know about this? Well, it's very important because if you understand Kamla, that there is path, uh, there is um, the things that you do, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, it has a direct result. Now, we don't know the ins and outs of the full formula of what makes up this comma, but what we do know is that we need to understand where our destination could potentially be, having done kutsula and akutsula things, activities in this life and in past lives. The Buddha says when we understand these three kinds of of existence, we have the direct knowledge of it and then we have the full understanding of it and we have the utter destruction through the abandoning. That's what's in the Bhava Sutta. So one can understand through Sadda, through the Buddha and the Noble Arhats, particularly Venerable Mahamogalana who had psychic abilities. He's the one that brought back a lot of stories about different realms. He went to talk to people and and ask questions how they came to that birth. But then the direct knowledge that the Buddha talked about is also as seekers, you can train your mind to higher attainments in order to see for yourself. So one of the knowledges is seeing past rebirths. So if you uh, are able to develop the seventh jhana to a high degree, then it is possible to actually see your previous births. Uh, I know people that can see it sequentially back very, very far. I know other friends who can uh, see their past lives, maybe not so sequentially, but they can definitely see. There are also other people, lay people, these are all lay people, who can see other people's past lives and say, you were this and that, you know, before. And the thing is, the wow factor is not, wow, they've got these abilities. 
the, the wow factor is that they have the direct knowledge for themselves because that's the key. When you see it for yourself, that's the direct insight. That's the direct wisdom that Buddha talks about in terms of this Dhamma. It's not about wow, psychic abilities to be able to see it. It's knowing the truth. And when you don't have that, then you rely on the sadha, the sadha towards Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And the other thing that can be done is traveling in mind-made body. And so uh, there are there are people I know who can actually travel in the mind-made body to actually visit other realms and to see for themselves. Again, it's not a wow factor. It is actually direct knowledge, direct insight. And so that is also possible. Now, let's go one by one. Let's look at hell realms. So let me just say from the outset that this is not going to be pleasant and it's not meant to be. But what we are trying to also develop when we listen to this is upeka, that you you don't judge it for being pleasant or unpleasant. You develop more of an equanimity to hear the truth. And the suttas that are very important for the hell realms, understanding Niraya, is the Balapandita Sutta, Majjhimanakaya uh, 129, and also the Devadutta Sutta, which is Majjhimanakaya number 130 about the divine messengers. In fact, the Devadutta Sutta is very, very graphic, and I liken it to watching a movie with a lot of violence, except this is more about the truth, that Buddha is telling you this is what happens uh, when when you go to a hell realm. And if you remember, Buddha says that he can't even find all the words to describe the hell realms. It's that bad, and the ones that he, he's used don't even show the enormity of how bad it is. So we need to contemplate when we look at Jati Bhitukha, we really need to contemplate birth in hells. And we do this through hearing the Buddha's words. Now, it's going to take too long to read all this out, so I'm not going to read it out. But when you're born in hell realms, it's because you've done unwholesome akutila things through body, speech, and mind. So essentially, you're bound into a world, reborn into a world that is filled with torture. So when you read it, you hear about the burning of skin with acid. You read it about being being stabbed so many times you or being put onto torture devices or burnt or all kinds of horrific things. And really it's because of things like killing that, that you get such violent rebirth. And what we can learn from it is to really understand how it, how important it is the severity of unwholesome actions like violence and killing, the wrong kinds of livelihood, having hobbies that involve killing, that once you start to realize the connection, you start to see that, oh, maybe I don't want to play video games that involve killing because consciousness doesn't tell the difference when it establishes itself. It doesn't tell the difference between someone else killing or whether it's you killing. And so when you delight in watching things that involve killing, that play things that involve killing, that is your livelihood that is killing, then consciousness has this almost like attraction towards going towards that to establish itself because it wants to come again. So when you understand that the most severe of the hell realms is because you have murdered your parents or murdered an arahant or injured the Buddha, caused a schism in the Sangha, that you'll be reborn in the same hell over and over again, that there are accounts of the great hell, the Abiti hell, the hell of excrement, the hell of hot embers, the hell of the wood of Simbali trees and the sword leaf trees where you're endlessly stabbed. 
it, it's quite devastating actually. And there's also the Niraya Bhagga in the Dhammapada that also gives explanations. One of the stories that I remember is from the Mara Tajaniya Sutta where Venerable Mahamogalana was Mara in a previous lifetime and he was called Duti. And he did so many terrible things to harm Arahants and, and to do all sorts of other unwholesome acts as, as Mara that as a result of trying to harm one of the venerables at the time, the immediate spontaneous result was being born in the Avicii hell and he was immediately impaled with stakes because I think he had thrown something at that venerable. And so he kept being reborn over and over again, experiencing that particular torture. And the explanation that was given was that it was like he was roasting in hell. They kept uh, experiencing that torture and then being reborn again and then again and again and again. And, and so when you hear these accounts, it's very much that you, you go, I don't really want to hear this. I really don't. But it's important to contemplate. And so you either contemplate it through Buddha's words or, or one of the noble ones, or you contemplate it directly for yourself. Now, one of the things that the Buddha says is that a person's greatest fear is actually dukkha. And so if you fear dukkha that comes in the form of torture, that comes in the form of physical pain, then you really will fear the hells. That's that's the way of, of, of looking at it. So... In terms of lower realms and these planes of misery, the only safeguard from it, as we've spoken before uh, when we looked at uh, stream entry, is actually to enter the stream. And so you can do this by by the Four Noble Truths. So it's out of wrong view and dusila, like not having virtue, that most people after human realm, they'll, they'll go, be reborn in, in lower realms, one of one of the, the lower realms. And same with a Deva or Brahma, there are suttas uh, that also talk about that if they haven't entered the stream, then what will happen is they're also at risk of being born in lower realms. So after living that very long lifetime in, in these divine realms, they'll fall. So now let's look at the animal realm. So Tiratana Yoni. So again, it's the same thing that out of Dasakusakusala, that unwholesome actions, wrong views and Busila, the wrong virtue, you'll be reborn in animal realm. And often what we think is that being born in animal realm is, is good. Like if we're pet owners and our pets are really well looked after, we think, oh, it's really nice to be born as this kind of animal. But the thing is, there are so many wild animals out there. And if you really pay attention to the bulk of the animal realm, whether it's the animal realm that is very, very fine and small, insects, ants, to the large animals, elephants, lions, birds, whatever, then you see that they never really sit still. The smaller you are as an as a animal or insect, the more that you never stay still. And why is that? It's because you fear being attacked, devoured and killed by predators, by many, many things. If you just watch the wildlife channel, you, you see that the animal realm is really a fear-based realm. So they're, they're, they're worrying about losing limbs. They're worrying about being killed. And so killing is also a very predominant thing in the animal realm. And the thing to remember around it is that there were people at the time of the Buddha that were called like dog duty ascetics or ox duty ascetics. And they were the ones that were practicing animalistic rituals and observances. And they had this view that if they had the behavior of a particular animal, if they had the uh, view of a particular animal and the, the, uh, practices of of an animal that they would develop a really good rebirth 
And the thing that the Buddha said, and I think there was this sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, I think it's number 57, the Buddha says that if you have that kind of wrong view, then you can expect two destinations, either birth in the hell realm or birth in the animal realm. And if you keep company with a lot of animals and behave and start to be like them, then again, you can expect uh, to be reborn in the company of those types of animals. So it's not it's not a good thing. And it's something to, to really remember to correct the view. And the other thing to always bear in mind, and in a place like Sri Lanka, you see it more because you have a lot of stray animals. That A stray animal, which is a lot like animals in the wild, you suffer because of the elements, whether it's too hot, too cold, wind, fire, snow, all the elements. And you also suffer because of hunger and thirst. So you often see animals always looking for food, always thirsty. And so we really need to um, correct and uh, this disconnect between actions and karma, because when we don't truly understand, then we can end up being reborn in the wrong place. And so we take steps to refrain from the wisdom of knowing this. And that's why you really need to contemplate birth in the animal realm. The other um, plane of existence or two planes of existence that we can look at now are the petaloka. So this is also the asura loka as well. There's petaloka and asura loka. So this is the hungry ghost plane and the titan plane. So the petaloka, the best way to understand this is to read the stories in the petavatu. So there are 51 suttas and you, you learn the, the stories of how they came to uh, be in that rebirth. Venerable Mahmoglana actually uh, revealed a lot of stories from, from these. Not all of them, but some of them. And so what mainly you, you hear is that they have big bodies and small mounds. Some live in very terrible conditions. They have, don't have a house, but under bridges and cemeteries. They're always hungry and thirsty. And you even hear a description of their food and, and uh, it's, it's not great. So just bear in mind that have some some upeka when you listen to this. Their food is saliva, pus, mucus, fat of the burning bodies, blood of women giving birth, blood of wounds, and then it goes on and on and on. So this is in Petavatu. And even stories of things that you, you try and understand how people come to, to be like a hungry ghost. And, and there's a story about um, this this woman who had been jealous of uh, the husband's other wife. And so she gave medicine to the other wife to kill the wife's unborn um, baby. And when she was accused, she lied, saying that on the on her five sons, she, she didn't do it. And so when she passed away, she went to the Petaloka. And every day uh, when she, she gave birth, she had to eat her sons. And she was still hungry after doing that, like hungry and, and no water. Uh, so she was thirsty and hungry. Now, these are very, very horrific stories. And, and our mind says, I really don't want to hear this. But the thing is, Buddha is always encouraging, wake up. You know, this this is not something that one needs to turn away from. This is something you need to know in order to then understand why walking the Noble Eightfold Path, you need to have virtue. And... The thing is, even small things accrue immense dukkha. And when you hear about the hungry ghost realm, the petaloka, that they're always requesting punya, 
that's the main uh, world that requests punya from us. It's because it's so bad. And what they think is, if I was a human again, I would make sure I, I make offerings, make sure I'm generous, make sure, make sure, make sure. So one can read these things and understand, or again, you can directly know for yourself from, from entering uh, particularly the seventh jhana to see for yourself, even past births and things like that. So understanding all that, um, it's very, very difficult. We do want to turn off our, our, our turn off switch, not want to hear it, but we need to exert energy towards it because if we do understand, then we can reduce a massive amount of suffering and into the stream if we haven't done so already. So then we come to the human realm. And in the Dhammapada verse that we've spoken about before, the story of the Naga King, Buddha says it's difficult to gain the human birth and difficult is the life of mortals. And, of course, he goes on to say opportunity to hear through Dhamma is also very difficult and arising of the Buddha is also difficult. And so he likens in other sutras that being born as a human is almost like sheer coincidence. It's like you, the world is, is covered with water. The great earth is covered with water. You toss a yoke and it has a tiny hole. And so when like a tortoise comes through that hole, it's almost and is born as a human. It's like sheer coincidence. That's how rare it is. And we forget that. We think out of conceit, oh, it'll be easy to get a human birth again. But Buddha says, no, it's not so easy. Now, the contemplation in the human realm is very much that we need to contemplate that there's dukkha. Now, for us, what we tend to do when ignorance is at the forefront is we gather all the peak moments in our life and we forget about all the bits that were were dukkha. We, we almost like hide the dukkha through our peak moments. So our peak moments of celebration of birthdays or births of uh, getting a promotion of having a holiday or um, getting rewarded or winning something. These are the peak moments that cover up um, the dukkha. And so the contemplation without going into too much detail is really you contemplate when you're born or even before you're born, you contemplate, well, you were in the mother's womb. That would have been a very dark and dank place. Where is the womb? It's right next to the canal of urine and excrement. And so you you think, is that a, a nice place to be for nine to ten months? Then you think when you're born, most people think it's wonderful, all the stories that come out when they're really honest, they're not, because you come out and what are you doing? You're crying and you're covered in bodily fluids of your mother and usually it's mixed in with blood and all kinds of things. And before you're given to your mother, of course, you're washed. Your mother doesn't want to hold you when you're filled with lots and lots of um, unpalatable body fluids. Then when you're a baby, what do you do? You're always hungry and crying. You're pooping, you're sleeping, eating and pooping, eating and pooping, it seems like. And the first few years, you're very, very dependent. In fact, you're very dependent for a very long time. Now, as we know, we don't like to be dependent on people, but in those years, we are dependent. And so the dukkha is there all the time. We have to examine it in our meditation to be to see the confusion, the dependency, having to learn everything. And then as we go through life, it's really to look at all the dukkha that really does exist. It's not as a way of depressing ourselves. It's really to make sure we understand that human birth isn't all great, that human birth means we have to learn and study, get stressed out about exams, failing our exams, failing people's expectations, 
getting a job, losing a job, trying to find another job, uh, trying to find a partner, not having a partner, having a partner and fighting, having children, um, having children hate us, having children make demands on us, feeling like a chauffeur, losing our children early, losing our parents, having difficulties with our parents, having to look after our parents, all kinds of things, you know, having wealth, losing our wealth, having stress over protecting our wealth. There's just so many, many, many things. But at the end of the day, you know, whether it's bullying, harassment, this quarantine right now, these restrictions right now, being imprisoned as a, as in jail right now, being in a war zone right now, whatever it is, why human realm is very important is that we can see most of the other realms in a small sense through the human existence. So we see even the divine kind of existence, even in the human realm. We get a taste of it. And we get a taste of all of the rest as well. So one cannot say that there isn't dukkha in the human realm. And when you think about it, most of our existence result, revolves around food. What do we do to make ourselves happy is around food. When we celebrate, it's around food. And what does our body do? Our body eats and then it has to, you know, let it out some way through urination and defecation. And people don't like to hear it, but when you take everything else away, our existence comes down to be walking uh, food machines and therefore walking toilets. And I just put that in there because I think understanding this body correctly is very helpful, understanding uh, this birth. So for the little bits of sukha feeling that we do, we go through a lot and we need to actually pay more attention to the sliding nature of things because when we actually start to do this, then it's really, really helpful. And so wrong view is always pressing on, on us to say, oh, this is all good, but right view is seeing the truth. So if we meditate correctly, um, even up until this point, then you really go to Eka because, you know, when you meditate on it, you see the lower realms, you see the human realm correctly, you, you actually activate your Eka Bodhanga. When that's active, then you can stay in the meditation longer. It also makes Upeka itself very, very stable. You see the truth and then you develop what the cause is Nibida, which is activating the Niroda, the third noble truth. And so when you have these really good meditations, what you do is you come out into daily life and that's where you become unshakable because your view is correct. From that place, it's very helpful in daily life because that's where you make the the wise choices. So the first noble truth is very, very important. It helps us to overcome stress. It over, helps us to overcome fears, anxiety, any problems we have in our lives with people or situations. And so we start to understand things a little more. So when we come to the divine realms, then Devaloka, we understand, we contemplate, but there is Dukkha here as well. Like the cause of rebirth is, of course, we have done Dasakutala. There is Sila, there is generosity. So we have the virtue. Now, the difference is that you have much longer lifespans in these, in these divine realms, millions and millions of years. And the stories you can access are in the Vimanabhattu. There are other stories in the, the main discourses, but the Vimanabhattu gives you 
illustrations of the heavenly realm. So it's because of virtuous deeds, like Venerable Mahamukulana went and asked questions, and you, you're blessed with celestial mansions, beautiful skin, beauty, garlands of flowers, beautiful smells, clothes, and radiance. From reading a lot of these things, you realize that these worlds are, are very much the same as human realm, except for maybe the the form of it that there is it's more immaterial but they have houses as well you know these mansions and things and they have all the different um types of things like that and then also um when it comes to uh intoxicants then fragrance of flowers are like their intoxicants and then you have suffering uh you realize when you read sutras like the the Jagga Sutta and the Suvira Sutta, both in the Sangyutta Nikaya uh, chapter 11, that there are wars between Devas and Asuras, that there are conflicts that arise. And so you realize that actually there is Dukkha there. And so when they pass away, that's another indication that there is Dukkha, that their flower garlands tend to wither, their clothes become soiled, they start to sweat from their armpits, and there is bodily radiance that starts to fade and they don't they don't take delight anymore in, in sort of like their deva type qualities and things. And then when it comes to um uh what the Buddha says, one of the key things is um Buddha encourages the Sangha not to be not to be um interested in Deva realms that despite the long lifespan, despite the beauty, despite the happiness and the celestial glory and their authority, to actually be more repulsed by it. And even more so repulsed than the Deva Lord, but to be even more repulsed by the the wrong uh, bodily, verbal and mental conduct. Like that's the Deva Loka Sutta. So the final two that we look at is the Brahma realms for completeness. So the Brahma realms, in terms of contemplating Dukkha, then we have this is because of the four jhanas that one can enjoy uh, various degrees of bliss and happiness in the Brahmaloka, that there are there is still dukkha in, in some of these realms, that when Vedana changes, because really because of the jhanas you develop this piti, this rapture, but when it comes to um, Vedana, when it changes, when it decreases that's when you experience the dukkha and so rather than like lower realms you experience it at a physical level physical changes in the brahma loka is because of um the, the the feeling that changes and so the pure abodes are also um there so then the final one that we look at is really this uh arupa sanya here i mean arupa loka and the arupa loka is really around um not having a physical body, but you're possessed entirely of mind. The key thing here is that you don't get to hear any Dhamma. The Buddha says in the Sankara Sutta, this is in Itipudika, the saying that uh, Pujutra Upasika recorded is that formless states are more peaceful than states of form. And what, what that means is that, yes, he admits it's more peaceful there, but then he says that Niroda, the cessation, is more peaceful than the former states. And that's because you get ultimate peace. There's no more rebirth. One of the distinct things about Arupa uh, Loka is that you can get stuck in the formless for a very long time with nothing. So there's no one there. There's nothing there. And it's for a very, very long time. So one should be quite cautious about that. And so when you look at all these realms of existence that we've gone through, the truth that you realize after the contemplation is that some of these realms are better than others and that there is dukkha in all these realms. 
And so the safety is only from stream entry. So you start to limit the amount of dukkha. So it's now time to do some meditation. So that's quite a big, big chunk. I think it's very useful to actually do some meditation. What I'd like to do is spend at least 10 minutes contemplating uh, jātibhidukkha, just if we were to be reborn in any of these realms, just to take this dhamma that the Buddha has given into the mind and to meditate on it. So let's do that now. And I'll bring us back after after we meditate. Peruan Saranai. Peruan Saranai. We can come out of the meditation. So we can now move on to aging is dukkha, jara pidukkha, and what is aging? So the suttas say, Aging of beings and the various orders of beings, their old age, brokenness of teeth, grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of life, weakness of faculties. This is called dara, aging. So the birth to aging uh, portion of this, the link between birth and aging is very, very important because in the modern times that we live in, there's a lot of denial of this. And the characteristic of aging that the Pithagor Buddhist talks about is over-ripening, that we over-ripen with age. And the thing to remember is that we start aging the minute we are born. And so you can't deny as much as, as you want to. And as the years go on, uh, it becomes even more difficult. And one of the obstructions of it, particularly as we start to grow up and start to cognize things, is this yoganamada. So if you remember, it's around um, it's around all these things to do with uh, youth that we want to stay youthful, and and so this is a very key test when it comes to uh, the first noble truth that we see the connection between birth and aging, because when you see it, then you know that the condition for aging is birth, and. When you deny, you always say, oh, I'm still young, I I still look good, everything's still fine, everything's still functioning fine, I can beat this, it's all good. But when you really contemplate the aging process, and as we know, this is one of the contemplations in the five frequent contemplations, is that you really need to take something like a magnifying glass and put it to your skin, put it to the hearing faculty, put it to to all the different things to actually understand that there is aging. Now, the magnifying glass that I just referred to is really alokasanya. Buddha talks about alokasanya and upeka being the one that allows you to really see. And you see it not from a place of unhappiness. You don't see it from a place of, oh, I don't like this or I like this, like sata, sata. If you remember, an arahant doesn't have sata, sata, but you see it from equanimity, from this upeka, that you just understand this truth. So when we age, what happens? So we investigate, what is dukkha like? Well, when our looks start to fade, you know, we try our best to stay youthful with makeup and creams and pills, and then it goes to Botox, surgery, even exercise is something in order for our uh, body to not look bad. And then also aging is through the vitality. As we age, the energy, the life force in the body weakens. It starts to decline. If you look at the sense faculty, even when we're young, when we need glasses, this is something of aging. Um, 
And as you get older, it gets worse. Our taste starts to go. Our smell is not so good. Our sight is definitely not so good. Our hearing starts to go, even around physical sensations. And then also our mental cognition, our memory also goes. And so these are all the evidence that we must collect in order to see it. So the idea is not to get sad, but to actually notice and acknowledge the truth of it. And when we compare ourselves to others and we, we look at the gap, when we look at, look at whether people notice us or when we're ignored, that is also a sign of this thing as we age. It's also a sign, ah, oh, something's happening for people to either look at us or people not to look at us. So when you're young, people tend to look. Skin is soft, skin is beautiful. But as you age, you start to get more ignored. People don't see you. You're not so super, so beautiful. And so when you look in the mirror, one of the, the problems is that you start to become a disagreeable object, the amana paramana, and you meet with dukkha dukkata. And so that's why you can't look at the mirror when you start to grow old. And this is where there's the connection between, between, bear with me one second. So this is what happens when uh, you see the connection between the body, so contemplation of the body, and where you see the connection with this first noble truth. It's so important that if you take right view and you have the alokasanya, the upeka, if you just have, you see it clearly, you realize that this asuba is really the truth. The aging reveals that truth. And what's really powerful is when you don't lump the body as a whole, when you see it as 32 body parts, when you see it as the nine holes, when you see it as the sack of impurities, even when you see the four great elements, when you're not lumping the body and covering it up with clothes and uh, um, perfume and, and makeup and hair dye and all kinds of things, when you just see the body as the body, and that's not to disparage anyone who goes out into the world and has to work and, and do all these things. It's more just to look at the truth of seeing the body as it ages. So jati to jara is a very, very important link. And when you start to see that, then it's a very, very good thing. So initially I was going to do a meditation, but I think what we can do is just take that Dhamma on board and we can move on to uh, sickness. So when it comes to sickness, again, it's very, very important. So this statement comes from the Girimananda Sutta because the other suttas don't really go into length about sickness. But the key points, and this is another test from the Buddha in order to understand the first noble truth, is quite often out of uh, arogya mother, like when we have good health, we, we are intoxicated with good health and we, we deny that we get sick. So the test is really to see the, even from jati to jara to viadi, that birth, aging, and sickness, this is something that we go through as part of this existence. And so contemplating it as dukkha is to see that the source of much of our dukkha, but also the danger, so the adinava, is that there are all kinds of afflictions that arise in the body, and you can see them listed on the screen. There are illnesses that are all associated with the body, all associated with the different um, bile, phlegm, wind, and combination in the body as well. 
There's all the um, illnesses produced by changing climate, if we're in cooler climates and if we're in hotter climates. And then you also have illnesses, you know, due to careless behavior. So we do something and something befalls us and we get sick or we injure ourselves. There's also illnesses that are produced through assault, um, all kinds of dastardly, horrible things. Then there's all illnesses produced as a result of karma that things that happen to us as a result of misconduct in previous lifetimes, and it it has the fertile ground to come when we are in this existence. And then, of course, the last ones are cold, heat, hunger, thirst, defecation, urination. I mean, the last four are the, the most obvious illnesses, even though we don't think of them as illnesses. When we're hungry, uh, that is a very huge illness. When we're thirsty... And then defecation, urination is a result of that. And so most of us, if we're really honest, what happens is, like, take this instance of being under restrictions and lockdown around the world for the last almost couple of years. It's good to, to reflect of how we feel about that, how fearful we are to get sick, how fearful we are for our loved ones to get sick or people we know at work, how fearful and upset we are when we fall sick. And so Buddha talks about 48 kinds of sickness in the suttas. And in the future, what he says is that there will be many, many more illnesses that we don't even know the name of. So the reflection to get out of wrong view is to really understand this and to really see, like even during this time period, it's a very good part of eyes open, but also in eyes closed in our meditation to formally acknowledge sickness is dukkha. And it seems quite obvious, but oftentimes the most predominant thing that we do is when we hear somebody has bad news about their health, oh, that person has been diagnosed with cancer, that person has got COVID, that person has whatever the illness is, the first thought that we have is, oh, my goodness, thank God it's not me. And the thing is that's the most obvious reaction that most of us have. Now, this is already something that, kind of goes against this this part of the noble truth, that really we understand the fragility of these bodies, that we don't factor in that there's so many things that we don't know. And when we admit it, particularly in the meditation, and we admit it from a place of upeka, so this place of equanimity, not the place of getting sad and sorrowful about it, but yes, that is true. But from a Dhamma perspective to see, ah, oh, this is the truth of it. If I birth this body, then I'm subject to old age and I'm subject to sickness and this is Dukkha. So there is a meditation to do there as well. And so we won't do it right now. We'll move on to death. So Marana is the next part of understanding uh, Dukkha. So death is the passing away of beings out of the various order of beings, the passing away, dissolution, disappearance, dying, completion of time, dissolution of the aggregates, laying down of the body. This is called death. So when it comes to this death, it's probably the most obvious thing that's dukkha. You know, we, we always try and run from it. And, and one of the key things that we need to understand is that when it comes to death, it happens to all of us all the time. Sorry. It happens to us at any age. And when you watch TV, 
the automatic reaction to death, particularly watching all the reports about COVID deaths or war deaths or deaths from natural disaster, you often want to switch the channel, turn the switch. And when it comes to um, watching movies, we like to watch movies or some of us like to watch movies that have a lot of death as a glorifying thing. Some of these movies that make it seem so wow, but we don't want to watch the movies that declare the truth about the severity of the suffering of death. And death is one of those things where we don't really understand what it's like when we don't appreciate death properly, the suffering, the hurt, the harming nature of it. And when we don't understand it, then we glorify death in movies about powerful superheroes and things like that who are also killing. Or we glorify video games or storybooks that treat death in the wrong way. They corrupt our right view. Because the honest truth about death is that it is dukkha. And nobody wants to be harmed. Nobody wants to be attacked. Nobody wants to be killed. We don't want to see our children pass away before us. We don't want to see our parents pass away. And our parents are the same towards us. And our children are the same towards us. They want, don't want to experience the death of us. So in this way, we need to make sure that we have right view activated, that we're not reconditioning uh, this understanding of death into something that we glorify death or even that we savor death in any kind of form through games or books or other things, because it is possible in these modern times to do that. It's very akusala. And then we're very careful with our choices, our habits, our hobbies. So death, in terms of what the Pethagopadesa says, is that it has this characteristic of disease, of vanishing, of passing away, of, you know, the ending of the body. So it's very important for us to develop a very strong death contemplation and so this is a very strong Asuba practice, Asuba Bhavana. Like if you look in the Satipatthana, you look in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, then you see that the channel ground contemplations, there's at least nine of them, I believe. And they're very powerful because you look at the real nature of the body in death. And one of the things about the Dukkapatipada Dhanda Binya, Dukkapatipada Kipa Binya, is that you divide, you, you contemplate, you have a very strong, uh, Maranasati. And that's one of the things that helps you with those the painful ways, painful modes of practice. So when we think that our bodies are great, but we look at birth, aging, sickness, and our death, what you see is that the real proposition, the real predicament that we're in is it's a bad deal. It's a bad proposition to birth the body. It's so fragile. It's so fleeting. It's so unlasting. It's so disappointing when it gets injured, when it fails us. It's so devastating when we get sick. And death, death is the ultimate devastation. Uh, when you have to be with death, it's grief, it's sorrow, it's lamentation, it's wailing, it's, it's despair. So the really good meditation that I'd like to do now is really to look at this Maranasati, very, very difficult meditation takes very enormous courage and a lot of energy to do. And what the uh, Mahasatipatthana and the Satipatthana Sutta say is that you contemplate the dead body for two to three days or more. It's very good if you have seen a dead body, such as, you know, a loved one that's passed away, 
very difficult, but it's the most uh, piercing one that can help you with this meditation. And what you're contemplating is the udumata, so the bloatedness, the vinilaka, which is the lividness, and the festering, vipuba kaja. So the bloating, the livid, and the festering. And what you do is you compare it to your own body. So a very easier way of doing it, not easy, but the way that helps you penetrate it more is if you see the dead body in front of you and then you lie down next to it and then you meditate that the nature of your body, which hasn't passed away yet, is similar to the dead body that is lying there that has passed away. And you allow the meditation to take hold. And when you meditate on it, there's certain things that can arise. It's a real blessing when that actually arises because what happens immediately when you first start, and most of you will have done Maranasaka before, but for those that haven't, immediately the mind rejects it and goes, I really can't do this. I need, and you physically feel sick. You want to get up. You want to run away. But if you push through and you, you rely on your sadha towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha, it's tremendously, I can't, I can't say how much value and how beneficial it is to getting out of dukkha that when you do this meditation, then if you continue with that meditation more, you continue meditating, you continue if the body was there for nine to 10 days, you contemplate the nine holes, what comes out of the, those holes, the decomposition process, you start to see something. If you're really, really blessed in this meditation, you start to see it from the mind-made body. You actually start to see your own death. You may even see your past um, deaths, uh, and that's what you start to actually uh, recall that. And it's not a scary thing. It's actually you do this in order to see the truth. If you do it correctly, the Bojanga start to activate the enlightenment factors. And at this point, the mind expands, and so the concentration will stabilize on the truth, and it deepens. If you're really lucky to have seen your dead body from the mind-made body, then you, re- you can recall past lives from that. And when you recall that, you see the Dhamma directly for yourself. And so that, those are the fruits of, of this meditation. And then when you come out of this meditation, it starts to become a whole lot easier to not take this body as me and mine, that you're able to start having some gap between what you think of this body and who you really think you are and what you are doing and what you want to do in terms of what you take delight in. Now, the really good meditation that follows on from, from this is the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta because you go into the five aggregates to clean individually <clears throat> and to meditate on that. But we're not going to do that today. But I'd like to do this meditation for at least five to ten minutes uh, because I think it's a very, very valuable one. I don't think you can go very deep for that amount of time, but I just want you to practice because I know that many of you know this meditation but I'd like us to practice it because it it is so extremely powerful. So again, the steps for the meditation, you contemplate that there is a dead body. If you've never seen a dead body, then just recall one that you've seen maybe from a picture on the news or from a movie that you've watched. But if you do and have seen a live dead body to a funeral or something like that, then recall that dead body and then put yourself lying down next to that body and just allow the, the mind to actually just ask, the mind to see the nature of this body through the dead body and then you allow that to 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 manifest and then you keep doing the meditation if you have time to see that body that's been now nine to ten days 
and you're really looking at the decomposition pro, um, process. So I don't want to say more than that, but you will see things. If you really see it, you really start to see things change in that dead body and then other things start to come to the mind. Truth really comes to, to the mind. So wish you all courage with this meditation. We all need it and a lot of metta and kindness in doing this meditation. So let's let's do that meditation now. Teruan Faranai. Teruan Faranai. We can come out of the meditation. So that was a pretty short time period for Mananath Sati. But what I recommend is actually to do Jati Jara Biadi Maranam today because it's actually a very, very good uh, opportunity to see the truth. A lot of the time when we contemplate death or uh, when we contemplate dukkha, sorry, we often focus on all the personal little things that happen to us day to day. And the bigger picture of our predicament is really what Bhamatakapawatana Sutta is about. It's really to, to look at the whole picture of our predicament, that we suffer, that we experience the whole mass of suffering, which is we're going to go on more into uh, the feeling experience and the mental pain and anguish that we go through because of creating this body, creating a birth in any of those realms, and in this instance in the human realm, and therefore we are subject to ageing, sickness, death, and then this rest of this suffering. So it's a very good meditation to do offline. Uh, what is recommended is to meditate, particularly on this first noble truth, and particularly Jati Dara Biyadi Maranam, birth, aging, sickness and death, for six to 12 months to get it firmly established. And also the rest of these terms as well, these, these aspects of Dukkha. But once you have that, it becomes something that you can activate even when you're stressed with studying, even when you have difficulties at work, even when you have relationship or marriage problems, even when you have problems with your parents or children, any kinds of problems in the world, because when you activate right view, and particularly this first noble truth, it lifts you out of the very specific kind of personal dukkha that you're experiencing to see the context for it. And so there's an encouragement there to actually look at it in these ways. Now, when it comes to Soka, Parideva, Dukkha, Domanasa, Upayasa, Dukkha, so this sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and despair uh, are suffering, then what we're really doing is, is looking at what happens after we die. So you can actually look at it from your daily life perspective, but that's not what I'm going to focus on here. I'm going to focus on it from the perspective of what happens, what's this kind of dukkha that arises when we die, because this is much more potent. So what we don't know when we die, so we've just done the death contemplation, is we don't know what our merit balance is, how much punya we have, how much kusala kamma we have, and we don't know whether we have enough to go to a, a pleasant abode like a devaloka or uh, one of the other brahmalokas, we don't know. We don't know whether our virtue is wholesome enough to ascend. We are concerned about the lower realms if we haven't entered the stream. So when we die, we've lost the most precious thing that we have. Death brings what? The death of the body, the death of the physical body. 
And when that happens, it's like we've lost our most precious thing, plus we've lost all our possessions, we've lost all our loved ones. And so that's when this sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and despair comes up in the midst of the utter confusion because people often think, oh, I'll know when I die. Um, but you really don't. And when you die, you don't know you're dead, and so you're wandering around as if you're still alive. And so there's a huge amount of confusion, particularly if you haven't developed meditations very well, like the Bhavatakaya, Bhavatasila, Bhavatachitta, Bhavatapanya, the Noble Eightfold Path meditations. If you haven't developed them strongly enough, then you don't know what death is like. So the death meditation that we just did, allows us to actually see what it's going to be like, what it what has been like in the past and what it will be like when we actually come to die. It's a very good thing. It's not something that we should be afraid of. Most of the time the Buddha says that he wants you to see the jhanas. He wants you to access the jhanas, whether the form jhanas or the formless jhanas. So once you see, you have the knowledge of these mental absorptions and then you get the truth of these mental absorptions that they're still constructed so you actively go there, but then what happens is when you see the truth, they don't become wow anymore. They don't become like, oh, wow, there's these abilities. They actually become truth. And so arahants, noble ones, they know it as truth, and then it, that's all it is. There's no sattva, sattva, like, dislike about them. There's upeka. So what we're trying to do in learning about death and about this bigger predicament is like it becomes there is upeka. We're prepared. So you know how you prepare for a test? Our ultimate test is when we die. So we're preparing for the ultimate test. We're studying, we're learning, we're practicing. So when we get into that that place, that situation, when it does happen, we are ready. It's like before you, uh, you know, launch into uh, trying anything, whether it's to drive a car, whether it's to fly an airplane, whether it's just to study, to do our jobs. Same thing, you need to practice, you need to learn and practice, and then you're ready. So this is our way of being ready through these meditations. So sorrow has this characteristic of change, being separated from um, what, it, what is pleasing. Lamentation is wailing and bewailing, and, and constantly crying out is the characteristic, is what, what the Pithical Padesa says. And then when it comes to pain, the pain is ultimately the loss of, of the body, the pressing of the body, that when you die, you're not sure what's going to happen. Some people are immediately reborn. Other people are actually not reborn straight away. There's a gap. And then, you know, you, you have all this dukkha that comes of losing your most precious object. So you're afflicted by not not being able to do what you used to do. So a habit tendency was always to eat. So you, you can't eat, but you have these feelings of hunger. And sadness comes also like a mental pain, that you have this feeling of, of sadness. It's a, it's a mental oppression. You're confused, you're worried, and you also have regret. Maybe you didn't do enough punya. Maybe, maybe the, your conduct, you regret some of your conduct. The sadness arises from that. And then despair is probably the most important one in the sense that you're troubled, you're distressed, you're desperate. Because if you've known only the body, then you're scrambling for a body. Like I've heard stories of people that work in hospitals where, because the hospitals where a lot of people tend to die, um, I've heard a story where a doctor went to have a nap in one of the rooms and they napped on one of the hospital beds. 
And what woke them up was this feeling that someone was trying to come into their body and there was no one there. And so when you have passed away and you're scrambling out of desperation, this upayasa, there can be this thing where you find any body to, to go into. And it could be in any of the realms. And what happens is uh, the characteristic that the Pethakopadesa talks about is that you're burning with defilement, the craving towards birthing again, relinking again. And that's what usually leads us towards a mother's womb if we uh, have enough punya towards a human birth or even an animal realm or something like that. So it's a bit like house hunting. You go looking in search of a new home. And so consciousness, when we don't train consciousness properly, when we don't train, uh, like when we look at the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations and consciousness, but particularly our sanyas, our perceptions, our sankharas, our volitional formations and our consciousness, if we allow them to always get sick, then we have the wrong view. So when they're corrupted with suba, sukha, anicca, so they're corrupted with beauty, they're corrupted with happiness, they're corrupted with a sense of me and mine, and they're corrupted with thinking things are lasting, then what happens is consciousness, vijnana always wants to establish itself somewhere that it has been before, that it takes delight in, that it welcomes, that it remains holding. And so that's what makes consciousness establish in a new home, such as a mother's womb. And so that's what you contemplate as the bigger picture for um, Soka Paradeva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa as Dukkha. Now, when it comes to Apiehi Sampa Yoga Dukkha, union with what is displeasing, then these are all the things which are disagreeable that we're united with. And rather than, and this can be in the mundane level, but let's look at it from the bigger picture, just continue this. So it's really the characteristic is meeting with what is disagreeable, Amanapa. So this could be meeting with losing one's body and roaming around, if that is what happens to you at death. It could be meeting a bad rebirth, a bad destination. So really this is in the bigger context that you haven't, walked in the belief path, you haven't safeguarded yourself, then you can be united with these lower realms um, and, and it can be quite dire and, and horrible as we have seen from going through, you know, the different lower realms um, earlier on. Then when it comes to separation from what is pleasing, here, here with the yoga dukkha, this is really what we're left with when we don't have a body. This is in the bigger context of things. So you can look at it from daily life as, you know, the things we don't like, the things that we don't desire, we find um, disagreeable in one sense that we've lost. But when it comes to um, the characteristic of what is agreeable, um, we're separated from it. So the characteristic is really losing what is agreeable, losing the manapa, so the manapa vinapava. So when that happens, when death comes, our most precious thing we lose, and also we lose our relatives, our possessions, our assets, our reputation, any power that we had, any freedom that we had, whatever we took as sukha at that time, as peer pleasing, then again, that, that is something that we no longer have. 
And so that is something that we also contemplate in, in meditation. So then the final one is not getting what we want. And the easiest way of understanding this is if there is tanha, then there is birth again. So all those previous contemplations from birth to aging to sickness to death, and then from death, you know, all these different other things, sorrow, lamentation, grief, pain, despair, sadness, pain, sadness, and despair. And then you have the union with what we don't like and separation from what we like or what we find beloved. Then in those aspects, this is how we, we come to think oh, then maybe I don't want to be born again. Or you think, oh, maybe I don't want to age. Maybe I don't want to get sick. You you have this thinking, oh, but that that's so bad. I, I don't want that. But when you have tanha, then you create the birth. If you create birth, then you have the rest of it. So you can't get away from it. You're stuck with it if there is birth. So this is what, what it means in the bigger picture, not getting what you want. And I think that's the biggest part of, of where you land after you've contemplated all those other 11 aspects of, of the first noble truth. And it's really the loss, the loss of, of the ability to, to choose again, because you're already like right here, right now, we're the owner of our karma. And what we experience now in this human realm is really our past karma has ripened and we're born as a human. So we are stuck with this whole mass of suffering because we've chosen incorrectly. And so the intention that comes up is we turn away, which is a good thing, but you need to understand the Four Noble Truths. The next part of all of this, which we're not going through today, is really understanding the the rest of the Samudaya, Tanha, then understanding Niroda through the Noble Eightfold Path. And when you understand all of it, then you, you really you really get the insight into what Niroda really is. And so you can investigate really deeply with this this last one because no matter which way we turn, we, no matter which way we think we can fix it, we can either fix it with money or we think we can fix it with our conditions, or with different people. So take, for example, if your relationship is not working, well, you think, oh, I'll separate, I'll get divorced if you're married and I'll pick another one, I'll pick a new model. And then that doesn't work, I'll pick a new model. But that's the way we always try and fix it. If something goes wrong, it breaks down in the house, oh, you just throw money at it. If you have money, you go, I'll fix it. I'll get a better one. I'll get the next, the next thing that comes up in technology. So I never have to go through this again until it breaks down again and you, you, you throw more money at it. Or if you lose your job, you, you get a job and you think, oh, man, maybe, maybe this is good. And then you lose again, you get another job and so on and so forth. In our minds, we think we can get what we want, even in a mundane sense. And that's another way of examining until you get to this big picture and you realize if you still have tanha and you create another birth, whether it's in any of those three types of worlds, there is always sliding. And the outcome is always this first noble truth of dukkha. So contemplate absolutely anything in your meditation and if you can see it, you see the decline, you see the sliding nature of it. And you see why we get so angry with these conditions in the world, because it's a bad deal. And you can't fix it in an ultimate sense. And you can't sustain sukkah in an ultimate sense. And even if in your mind you construct these very beautiful meditations, at some point you realize 
early on and then later as you develop deeper meditations, you also see the construction and you keep trying to reestablish, reconstruct that really super duper meditation and you find that it's faulty. But that's a good thing. When you see all the faults in all the things that we do in daily life, in all the things that we do, even in bhavana, that's the blessing of it because then you realize for yourself, Nibbana is the only lasting happiness. That's what the Buddha is pointing to because everything else, it's like it's, 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 it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And so it's a very beautiful thing when you get through the whole of the first noble truth. So we're almost there. I mean, these are the 11 contemplations. The only last bit is about the five aggregates, and I'm not going to go through in, in great detail this. We've looked at this in other FOIA sessions, particularly when we looked at Yoniso Manesikara, and we're looking at particularly Anita Dukkha Natta, the three characteristics of the five aggregates. But essentially, uh, the very good meditation for this is Samadhi Bhavana Sutta because you really see uh, the nature of these aggregates and you meditate sequentially through the inside pathway of the Buddha in, in this meditation. There's also the Penapindupama Sutta, which also draws on the fact that these aggregates subject to clinging are actually something that we don't want to cling to because they're a great cause of, of Dukkha. So this is the, we, we looked at this in the, I think the Yonisomanisikara Poya session. But really, just to quickly go through, uh, we have form, which is the element of extension. There's the patavi, the earth element, the element of cohesion, which is arpo, the water element, the element of motion, which is vayo, the air element, the element of heat, which is teja, which is the fire element. So it's the four great elements make up rupa. And so Pena Pindukama Sutta you know, tells us to liken this to foam. When it comes to feeling, Vedana, there's three kinds of feelings. So sukha feelings, pleasurable, not pleasurable, dukkha, so unpleasant feelings. Neither pleasurable nor unpleasurable are sukha feelings. But then they can also be divided into physical and mental. So then that's uh, six. So two by three is six. Then what arises due to sense contact, so there's six uh, sense faculties. So six by six becomes 36. And then these are things that you can experience in the past, you can experience them in the present, and you can experience them in the future. So that's another three. So three by 36 is 108. So there's 108 different kinds of feelings to, to investigate. And then Pena Pindupama Sutta uh, gives us the simile of the water bubble in order to understand that. And then when it comes to perception, sanya, what we feel, we perceive. So whatever it is that these 108 feelings, then we perceive them as well. And what we perceive, we apprehend is what the Buddha says. So it's like a mirage. We, we often uh, veer towards these sick perceptions, these rogi sanyas, which are corrupted, perverse. They go the wrong way because we've distorted our right view. When we take suba instead of asuba, when we take sukha instead of dukkha, when we take atta instead of anatta, Nietzsche instead of anicca, so beauty instead of foulness, happiness instead of dukkha, me and mine instead of it's not me and mine, and then lasting instead of unlasting or permanent instead of impermanent. And then when it comes to the volitional formations, the sankara, then there's three kinds. And 
you know, you have bodily, verbal, and mental. So bodily is when you inhale and exhale. Verbal is the speech, but it's also the vitata vitara, the initial and sustained application in our meditation. Mental is the mind, so our feelings and perceptions, our volition towards them. And then you also have the punya side of it, the punya apisankara, so that the meritorious types of uh, activities that we wish to do. There's also the apunya, which is the demeritorious on the unwholesome side. And then we have the anenja abhisankara, which is the imperturbable, neither merit nor demerit. So the punya side is mainly around the first four form jhanas, and the anenja is mainly around the fifth to eight jhanas, the formless jhanas. So what the Buddha says, and I think we went through this in the Sangiti Sutta in the first chapter, um, Buddha was talking about volitional formations being constructed or conditioned. And um, they condition these five aggregates. So the, it's the Kajaniya Sutta and Sanyutta Nikaya, Chapter 22, Discourse Number 79. Buddha says, Religional formations, these Sankharas, construct the conditioned form as form, the conditioned feelings as feeling, the conditioned perception as perception, and the conditioned volitional formations as volitional formations, and the conditioned consciousness as consciousness. Now, how do we understand that? It's basically the Sankatang Abhisankaroti. It's, it's difficult to translate, but really these Sankharas are constructing what is conditioned. So everything that we construct in the world, uh, that we apprehend in the world, that we cling to in the world through Sankharas, that is what uh, gets constructed and reconstructed. And we keep reconstructing over and over again. And there is that link between sanyas and sankharas. Even when we apprehend other people's sankharas, we misapprehend them. We go, oh, I like what that person's thinking, their plans. So easy way to understand it. We see someone in a different place. They have a great life. And we we take that as our perception. We, we hear their story, oh, I studied over there and I got this good job and the place I'm living is very clean and beautiful and I have this great existence and I can afford to buy this house and I can do these wonderful things and I get this power and authority and all those things. And you don't see any dukkha in it. But then what you do from a sanya perspective is you perceive all that and you think, oh, suba, suka, atanita. No, this is beautiful. This is, this will bring happiness. It's worth taking as me and mine. And I can make that last if I do all those things. So then you make these choices that say, oh, I'll go and study abroad over there. I'll go to that great university and then I'll have these job openings and then I'll marry this wonderful type of person and have these gorgeous kids and I'll drive this Ben's car or whatever it is and I'll keep ascending the career ladder and, and I'll acquire all the essential things, the house, the car, the whatever it is. And, but when you go and do all that, when, when Vinyana goes and applies herself to all of that and you actually go and do all these things, yes, that is life. But it's important not to make wrong choices that you don't need to make and then create this great, big, complicated thing and then realize actually it's all the same. Everywhere, whichever place, whichever circumstances, even the most pleasant circumstances in the human realm, there is Tukka. You're still subject to old age, sickness, death, and the whole mass of suffering. So 
you can see everything in brief within the five aggregates when you when you actually look at it correctly. But you also see the link between this, the corrupted sanyas, these volitional formations that are constructing all the time, and where Vijnana wants to go and establish. And so all these meditations that we're doing, that we're learning, helps us to see the whole formula, how how our mind factory works. Because when we look at someone else and adopt their sankharas, their dreams, we get giddy loba, the greed towards their dreams, and we adopt them as our dreams. What we're actually saying is that we can fix it, we can make it good, we can construct and we can limit the amount of dukkha. Buddha is saying, no, you can't. You still face the same amount of dukkha. The whole mass is suffering because you birthed. If you continue this birth, then you, you have countless births with countless suffering. Only the Sotapanna and above limit that to only seven lifetimes and less. And that is your only safety. And so that is why we do all these meditations, to practice, to learn, so that we don't fall into this predicament. So this is where I'll end today's session. Uh, there's, of course, always more to be said, but I think that's more than enough today. And so I'll open up for questions, if there are any questions, and, and then after that uh, we can share the merits. Teruan Saranai.